Hello and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. All right, as you can see, I'm a little differently situated this week, and that is because uh, Melissa and I have been prepping and setting up for this call-in show that I am setting up, and uh, it's happening. It looks like it's going to be on Wednesday evenings to start with. We'll probably do it at like 7 or, um, yeah, probably like 6 or 7, probably 7, uh, our time. And um, and it's going to be a real call-in show. And I invested way, I spent way too much money on this guy right here. This is a Rodecaster Pro. It is what allows me to do it. I was really surprised that it is not the easiest thing in the world to set up a call-in show. Um, it's and in order and especially not to do it the way I wanted to do it, where I would also be able to add in sound effects and be able to screen the calls, and hopefully eventually, um, or you know, as we get going with it, also have partners here. My wife, I was thinking about bringing Ruth back for an episode or two, maybe other friends I have locally, as well as bringing in people through the internet to co-host with me, all uh, Atheist Experience and uh, The Line and, you know, other call-in shows that people are doing out there that I am inspired by. I do not plan on having the call-in show be another version of the Atheist Experience. I do not want to just argue with theists. I'm perfectly happy to engage with them if they call in and talk, talk to me about my beliefs or belief in general. But I think I want to uh, also talk more about or have more of a slant towards uh, cults, of course, undue influence, propaganda, and critical thinking. Definitely want to do that. So we'll be doing whole shows on stuff and taking calls and interacting with you guys. And uh, it's going to happen pretty soon. Probably not this this week, but probably next week. If if everything goes according to plan, then we'll be set up. And I will definitely give you guys plenty of alerts through YouTube, Twitter, social media, you know, Facebook, social media, etc. So that all being said, I just wanted you guys to know that's happening and it's kind of exciting. I'm certainly excited by it. And I really, really look forward to being able to interact one-on-one -on -one with you guys uh, and not just through a chat window on the live stream Q&As that we do, which we will be continuing, by the way. Uh, Q&A show does not change at all. My Sensibly Speaking podcast isn't going to change. So I am going back to three videos a week at least, <laughs> uh, on here. Okay, so that is out there. Now, I did have another question for you guys, just since I love getting your feedback in the comments or otherwise. I'm also a little curious whether um, maybe some short, you know, well, obviously everything on TikTok is short. I have not touched TikTok in any way. I haven't even looked up the app, but I was wondering if maybe um, that might be a, a way of appearing on TikTok for, you know, some older guy like me might be throwing some, you know, critical thinking points out on a, on a daily or semi-daily basis. Kind of curious what you guys thought about that idea as well. I have no idea whether TikTok is a platform I should go anywhere near. But if I do, that was an idea that I had that I might make myself useful somehow there. Um, but you guys let me know what you think about that. All right. 
other thing that I want to talk about general business-wise is um, the Sensibly Speaking podcast this week. Uh, it has to do with neuroscience. It is the first of a series of interviews I'll be doing with Dr. Jonas Kaplan from USC. Uh, he's a cognitive neuroscientist and a really nice guy. And, um, and we are starting that little series of stuff on neuroscience. And I... Uh, really did a pretty deep dive on some neuroscience stuff this last year, and I think that it is relevant and interesting and important information to have for anyone who actually wants to understand what's going on up in our noggins here with some of the goofy ideas and, and cult thinking and tribalism and um, you know cultures. I mean, there's a lot going on, and I think that um, oh, as well as, of course, as logical fallacies, why we think funny, why we think goofy ways. What's that all about? I want to go in on that at that level. And so um, I hope some of you guys will check it out. Doesn't look like it's going to be a super popular series based on uh, response so far. And fine, I get it. But I uh, just wanted to promote that because... Um, because if you want to deep dive on, on you know, what, what we're really all about... It's kind of hard to uh, to not go into you know some neuroscience. Okay, so that all being said, let's get on with your questions for this week. Steve Aldrich, are the Scientology numbers dwindling because of the pandemic? Do shut-in Scientologists have a look at anti-Scientology web material while under quarantine that they normally wouldn't have time to investigate? Hey, Steve, thanks for the question. I have no way of actually and objectively answering the question because Scientology's membership numbers and census figures are completely uh, non-transparent. Scientology does not share that information at all. They do happen to know on a weekly basis exactly how many active Scientologists there are all over the world. Those statistics are collected duly every single Thursday after two and uh, compiled and totaled and and you know, put on a graph. And so this information is definitely there. But very few people, even in the world of Scientology, are, um, are have, you know, are, are able to access those numbers. It's no public Scientologists have access to that information at all. It is only at the international management level, um, which is basically um, CMO International, David Miscavige's organization, RTC, um, you know, international management, those are the guys who have those figures. So it's, you know, less than 100 people. Actually, probably, if I think about it in terms of who actually has direct access to that information, yeah, probably about 100 people <laughs> around the world could get that data. So it's, a, it's not a well-known piece of information. Just throwing that out there. I thought you'd want to know that. Um, now, as far as my conjecture about that, based on what I'm seeing Scientologists doing, and there is a marked increase in internet activity on the part of Scientologists because by necessity there has to be because we're all shut in. And even Scientology churches, for the most part, or at least some part, are complying with orders to um, you know, follow social distancing, even closing and shuttering their doors. Uh, I know Cincinnati Org, I know a lot of the orgs around the Western United States are, um, 
are closed. They're just not letting people in at all. But then we also know through Tony Ortega's blog and through Mike Rinder's blog, uh, where they post promotional pieces and information coming out of the Scientology world, that they are still gathering in some org locations. Uh, Denmark is open, and there's probably other European and American orgs that are open in defiance of um, social distancing guidelines and CDC who... Um, you know, regulations and recommendations, but they're, you know, Scientology is nothing if not absolutely positively sure that they are right about everything. So they don't really care about, you know, that, but they do care about the apparency of complying with the law. Uh, that is very, very important to them. And that's why you see promo pieces being put out by Scientology right now where people, Scientologists, are wearing masks and they're running around cleaning things and they're trying to be a, you know, what they perceive as a positive force for change in their communities or in their, you know, or in their environment. Um, anyway, so we're also seeing... Uh, at least one organization, I think it's London, uh, this guy Charlie Wakeley is uh, got a YouTube channel and he's actually posting videos going chapter by chapter through the Scientology handbook and talking about it. And I actually reached out and invited him onto my show. I actually left a comment on one of his videos and said, hey man, I'd like to, I'd like to interview on, you on my show. He responded saying, email me at, uh, you know, whatever his email address was, and I did. Haven't heard back yet. But I find that um, pretty interesting that they're coming, uh, putting a YouTube presence out there. I'm really not sure what to think about that. I don't know if he has, um, you know, approval from on high, but I somehow doubt it. And this goes to your question, Steve, because one of the reasons why I don't think it's an authorized activity for Scientologists to be on YouTube putting up videos, if they've thought this through, and I would think that they would have, is because YouTube also recommends other videos for you to watch on the same subject or area. So when somebody as a Scientologist posts Scientology videos about, you know, talking pro-Scientology stuff, viewers are going to get a whole list of recommended videos, which are going to include videos featuring Mike, Leah, uh, Tony Ortega, Mark Bunker, right? These are very, very big videos. They might even get the Jason Begay video uh, recommended to them, as well as sometimes, the, you know, maybe some of my content or Aaron's content will pop up too. So, um, so this is a little bit of a danger for them to be posting stuff up on YouTube because, you know, because of those recommendations and stuff. Um, but they're out there doing it, and I'm a little curious as to why. They seem to also be um, uh, posting, I've seen, I've heard about other YouTube activity by Scientologists also. And this is, of course, all in addition to the official Scientology website and official Scientology videos. Those are kind of their own thing. These are more homegrown videos. Anyway, just kind of commenting on that. Um, because I think those are all ways that Scientologists are trying to stay engaged and trying to stay in the headspace and trying to keep up the indoctrination. Charlie, I believe, uh, is a staff member, I think, in London. So I think that's why he's trying to do this and engaging with other Scientologists. Um, and I think that other staff are probably thinking along the same lines because you know, as I've mentioned before, Scientology is a very one-on-one, -on -one, in-person activity. It's very, very, very difficult 
to propagate or uh, teach Scientology or use Scientology without being there in person to do it, especially when it comes to their training and more importantly, their auditing procedures. That's not something that you can do over the internet. And I don't think David Miscavige is ever going to set up a system where they're doing Scientology over the internet. All right, so I kind of use this question to sort of go on about some of the activities that I've seen from Scientologists right now. I imagine that they are definitely losing members. I think they're losing members pretty much on a fairly daily basis because of the amount of negative you know, word about it out there. Um, Yet at the same time, I think that it's gotten down to such a small number at this point of, you know, the enthusiastic Scientologists that they tend to be, the ones who are left are um, either hardcore fanatics, right, fervent believers who are never going to change their mind no matter what you tell them or what you say to them, and their immediate family and friends. And much of the staff, much of the Sea Org are second, third fourth generation Scientologists. So, you know, even they are motivated to stay on staff, stay in the Sea Org because their family, who might not even be staff or Sea Org, they might just be Scientology whales or Scientology public. Um, you know, they stay in the Sea Org, they stay in the Scientology staff because they don't want to lose those connections. So, um, so I think in an, in a number of ways, we're really down to the hardcore, you know, core of of what is left of Scientologists, or like I said, their immediate family and friends who cannot disconnect from them or cannot let them know what they really think about Scientology because um, they'd end up getting shunned, disconnected, you know, and they don't want that. I could be, and I have to always sort of put this out there, um, I probably don't say this enough, but I, I, you know, I could be wrong about that too. I might be looking at this picture in an overly optimistic fashion. What I am positive about is that Scientology is not growing right now. That I am sure of. I think it's probably more of a bit of a static situation. But as I said a few weeks ago, and as I'll, and as I, I think I will say now with this answer, I do think that they are still losing people because of the exposure of the abusive practices. And um, I think all that work was not done in vain or was wasted at all. Uh, I think we've lost a whole lot of Scientologists because of that. And I think that as these guidelines go on into the future, and we're not really talking too much about this, but I'm anticipating that these um, social distancing guidelines and businesses being shut down and all the stay-at-home orders and all of that, this is probably going to go on for quite a while. Um, you know, a little hard to say. I think that there's going to be waves of it maybe in some places where other places are going to stay locked down because they're sensible. <laughs> but um, I think that's what's going to end up happening here. So I think long range, we are definitely going to see a reduction in Scientology membership over the coming months. I have no real doubts about that. So there you go. Kevin Zay. Why do people who are obviously hyper-partisan when it comes to politics claim not to be when confronted? Are they experiencing the same mindset as cult members do when you tell them they're part of a cult? Hey, Kevin, thanks for the question. Um, probably the most direct way to address this would be to say that there are very, very few extremists or people who get involved in 
you know, hyper-partisan thinking who consider that they're actually extremists. They, they don't really think of themselves that way. They think of themselves as very ardent believers, very firm supporters, very energetically on the side of good. And every one of these people absolutely believes that what they believe in and what they are doing and what they're pushing is good. They don't think of themselves as evil, mind-controlling, high-control, authoritarian people. Ever. Not, not one cultist thinks of themselves that way. Because once they start doubting themselves and thinking that way, then, of course, they start questioning what they're involved in. So it's a gradual series of steps that gets a person there. It's not a binary, you know, on-off situation. So because it takes a while to get somebody into an extremist headspace, that gradual path that they walk seems like a very sensible, rational approach. They agree to one thing, then they agree to another, then they agree to another. And before you know it, that, that you know, they're out in, uh, you know, Alex Jones land or uh, they are out in whatever extreme, excuse me, hyper-partisan position they're in. And we can talk all day about left or right. It doesn't matter. Good, bad, right, wrong, up, down, you know, uh, there are extreme ends of all of these spectrums, and this applies to all of those extremities. So um, so when you confront somebody on this and you say, dude, you're a cultist, you're hyperpartisan, you're being, you know, you're being an extremist, you're being an authoritarian, whatever, well— Nobody wants to think of themselves that way, or at least I should say nobody who's sane or rational wants to think of themselves that way. And by far, the, the, the vast majority of people that you're going to meet and talk to who get into extremist mindsets are not mentally ill or insane. They're not. It, it's just, you know, our regular function, the regular way that our brain functions and that rationality and, and belief work is uh, anyone can get into an extremist mindset about something. They just have to buy into these, this series of agreements that get them there. And then their worldview is such that they can't imagine any other way of looking at things than that way. That's the part where things get you know, a bit nuts. It's not, it's not even the, the, the nature of the belief itself. It's the... It's the fact that the dial is up to 11. But they don't think that the dial is up to 11 is where I'm trying to go with this. And um, and that's why an intervention of some kind is usually necessary to start showing them where they've gotten to, what they're looking, you know, like how their worldview is a bit more than it should be, you know. Um, okay, so, you know, yes, people who are, who are in a hyper partisan position politically are experiencing the same kind of phenomena that cult members are. Same, same mechanisms get them there for the most part. Motivated reasoning, confirmation bias, cognitive dissonance, right? Rejection of things that, that, that refute your worldview or refute the path that you're on or the belief system you've adopted. These, you know, these are the mechanisms that are at play um, love bombing is a technique that's used to get people to that that place on the spectrum. Uh, and of course, threats of some kind or another also enter in also, right? There can be emotional blackmail. There can be, 
you know, uh, any any number of things. All of those things can also, in terms of external influences on the person, those are all at play just as much with hyper-partisan politics. And the number one thing, of course, or number one thing, again, high on the list of influencing factors here, is echo chambers. Getting into social media echo chambers, getting involved in real-world echo chambers. I mean, now, with the, with the way things are, most of people are just kind of living in their social media echo chambers or Zoom meeting echo chambers. Um, but it tends to be, you know, from a from a sociological perspective or a group perspective, you know, the person gets more and more and more involved in a group where the only people they're talking to are people from that that in group, and they eschew or or reject or get rid of, you know, anybody who's not part of that group. That is in and of itself not a not even that is necessarily a bad thing, right? Eschewing Nazis is not a bad thing. Getting Nazis out of your life, nothing wrong with that. So, but that's not an echo chamber situation. That's getting destructive forces out of your life. That's a little bit of a different thing, right? So you can take the action and misinterpret it or, or give it a value assignment where, oh, so you're saying that anytime anybody you know, gets rid of people or disconnects from people or shuns people from their life or something or doesn't agree with people, doesn't want to hear about them, that that is, um, you know, hyper-partisan cult thinking. Well, no, it's not always that way. This is where context is very, very important. Context always is king, okay? So just gonna, just, just wanted to realize that I sort of went in a direction there and thought, oh boy, I better head that off at the pass. So Anyway, that is my answer to your question, Kevin. I hope that satisfies. Barney Saunders, you have mentioned that Scientology Parent was invited onto the TV show Leah Remini Scientology in the Aftermath, but declined, and Aaron Smith-Levin has talked about an undercover Scientologist who almost appeared on the show until they discovered that he was indeed an undercover Scientologist. My question is this. How did the admissions process work for participants on Leah Remini's Scientology in the Aftermath? If the number of potential participants far outweighed the number who ultimately appeared on the show, how did the producers decide who would appear? And most importantly, how to verify the precise accuracy of what participants on the show would bear witness to publicly? Was there something of a vetting process or informal investigation? Hey, thanks for the question, Barney. I was not a producer on the show, so I can't answer this question definitively and as though I was involved in that process because I was really only a consultant on the show for the first season or two and officially season two while I was involved with season one and answering a whole lot of questions producers had. Um, so... That was my involvement with it. Now, what I can tell you from my limited involvement with that and then a little bit of behind the scenes that I did get is that Leah specifically said that there was no vetting process. However, there, you know, clearly there was. They didn't let everybody on who had a story to tell. They needed to work out what they thought would be good TV versus what would be uh, necessary, important stories to tell. And, you know, that's the balancing act that they sort of walked on is, you know, is important, you know, stories of abusive behavior, harmful activity, you know, um, 
that was in, you know inflicted by the Church of Scientology on these people. So you you had no shortage of people who were stepping up to tell their stories. That I can tell you for sure. There were a lot of stories that did not get told. Um, I can't say for sure what the final conditions were in accepting or rejecting whatever stories were told, except for the fact that they were tempered by the need to, t- to, to you know, produce good TV that would be very interesting to people and give service to the people who were coming forward. So um, anyway, so that's, that's, you know, the questions I know that they were answering or trying to figure out or you know, guidelines they were using were pretty much those. Um, I understood that they definitely verified the stories as far as they would contact other people who knew those people, you know, kind of probably not so dissimilar to how I will vet people when I have them on my channel. People have approached me who I didn't know and asked me, um, like Christina Richards, the last Scientology Experience series that I did, where she actually came and we we did a whole interview right here in this room. I had never met her before, interacted with her in any way. And um, so I asked her before she came out here, can you, you know, give me some proof of, of your story? And she did. She gave me photos. She sent me, you know, pictures of certificates she had gotten in Scientology and invoices and stuff. I mean, she very clearly showed that she had been involved in Scientology. And she actually had names that she dropped and people that I knew that she knew, etc. So uh, that's how I was able to verify, you know, to my satisfaction that she was telling the truth. And then we did the interview and it was incredible. So... Um, so I think that's pretty much probably how the Aftermath show went about it. Um, if Leah and Mike did not already personally know these people, and I will say that a great number of people who were on the show were people that we already all knew or had uh, interacted with. I mean, there were people from the Going Clear documentary, and there were other ex-Scientologists, ex-Sea Org members that I worked with or knew when I was in or met since I've been out in the ex-community. So, um, so for the most part, most of the people, in fact, I, I think everybody I can think of right now who was on the show has been someone who we all pretty much knew something about their story and their family and their connections and where they had been online and all that before the show even aired. So that's what I know about that. And uh, that's, there you go. Polly M. Do you believe you have a soul? Do you think we are spiritual beings having a human experience? Oh, man. (laughs) Okay, I have been up and down, back and forth on this question for a very long time. And I have said for many years that I have spiritual hopes, not beliefs. That's pretty much still the case. As I have learned more and more about human psychology, about religion, organized religion, um, and of course, neurology and uh, <laughs> and other things, I find it more and more difficult to let myself believe that there is some non-material existence. Now, that being said, the more I find out about the universe and the more I find out how little we actually understand about it, the more I wonder how could there not be more? Or what is it about existence, about, you know, this universe and us and, and our and life itself 
is there something you know that we don't know yet that we haven't figured out yet that, that our models are you know are not uh, useful for and I have actually wondered whether we're even capable of understanding life at, a, at, at its most fundamental level. We have all these models, we have all these ideas of what we can understand based on how we experience life. But we're finding, and if you watch my podcast on, neuro, on neuroscience this week, you'll see an example of what I'm talking about here. We are finding that the way we think, the way the brain operates, for example, is completely counterintuitive to how we experience thought. So what we think is happening isn't really what's happening. We just have this sort of simulated experience of what's happening. And that's not a necessarily a bad thing. It's just that it, it's very important to understand that because then you look at life and you look at what we're, how we experience life differently. And you go, huh, all right. So what else is there that is, uh, that is counterintuitive, right? And are we even capable with this am amazing organ that we have in here are we even capable of modeling what a spiritual existence even is? I mean, you know, if you really get down to it, like, what, what, what does that mean? I mean, in Scientology, you have a Thetan. A Thetan is supposed to be something that exists, and yet it's nothing. It has no physical existence of any kind. It does not actually exist in the real world. And if you're going to talk about spirits or spiritual existence well are you talking about you know multi-dimensional are you talking about some you know something from another dimension and what does that actually mean at a, at a root physical level does that mean it's operating at a different vibration and what does that mean or does it mean it's from some other realm that's beyond the physical realm and what what are the rules of that you know, because there's conjecture about that in terms of other universes that might exist, other dimensions, as we say, that might exist, and how would they exist? So, you know, so there's all kinds of conjecture and questions and, and wonderings going on, and they are fascinating, they are wonderful, they are really, really interesting, but are they true? Jesus, man, who knows? <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, so, given the vastness of the question and the vastness of the universe and the tininess of us and the relative insignificance of us in the big wide world, big wide universe, even the insignificance of each of us as an individual when looked when you know when you go to the macro view or the meta view or whatever you want to call it, um, what's so special about us? Why, why, why should we be spiritual entities that have this special, unique value to us, you know? I don't know. So, it's, so it depends on, you know, so framing and, and, and how you look at the universe and, and breaking it all down in, in, in the different uh, disciplines that we've adopted here on Earth. And, you know, I mean, you just, you just see lots and lots of different ways of looking at this question. And this is how I look at stuff, and it's probably a little nuts. Because I bounce around from here to there and everywhere, right? Thinking about this stuff. Um, and I just have to end up with, you know, do you believe you have a soul? No, I don't. Do I believe that there is something, that there is some character or, or uh, characteristics or something about life that we don't understand? 
Absolutely. Yes, definitely. Do I leave the option open that we might have a soul? Yeah, I do. So that's kind of where I'm at on it. It's a great big I don't know, but it's an I don't know with all these flourishes on it because there's all this vast potential of knowledge that's just waiting to be discovered. And we need people to get into STEM in a really, really big way and get these answers to these questions. Because religion isn't going to provide these answers in any kind of ultimate provable sense. And they never will. Religion isn't about science or the scientific method or even you know accurate reflections of reality. Religion is about faith and belief and you know what could be. And it's about feeling good, and it's about community, and it's about a number of things. It's about answering questions, you know, for people so that they feel better. You know, it's, uh, that, that's what religion is about. Science is about actually finding things out that we don't know right now. And I think that as we learn more through science, the potentials of religion will either be invalidated and shown to not be true, or... They will be shown to have some merits, have something to it. One of those two things is going to happen. Most atheists seem absolutely positive that the more we learn about science, the more we learn about the physical world around us and how it operates, that religion is going to become negligible, non-important, not essential, not needed. I don't know that that's true at all. I think that's itself a bit of a hyper-partisan <laughs> point of view. You know, it's determining the conclusion before the journey has been concluded. How do you know where the, on any of this is going? None of us do. So I, you know, so I find that assumption to be a bit off, actually. And um, I try to keep, you know, in, in my more lucid moments... <laughs> <laughs> when I'm not on Twitter, you know, I hate tweeting on somebody. Um, I try to keep a more open mind and I try to, and this this question in particular is one that has definitely, you know, I got a lot of attention on this and I, and I definitely would, would, would love to see some kind of breakthroughs or some kind of like, you know, new understandings or a new way of framing how we understand the universe so that this question becomes, one, a bit more understandable, two, a bit more relevant, and three, we actually get an answer to it. Quite honestly, I don't think that's going to happen in my lifetime. Um, but I do think that the journey itself of the discovery of this will be a fascinating and non-boring one, and that's what I'm along for the ride on. So there you go. Robert Scott. I enjoy your talks a lot. Your recent foray into Gnosticism was fascinating. I wanted to ask you a question regarding the self-destructive nature of cult leaders. Last summer, I did a pile of video research on Hubbard, Nixon, and Jim Jones, looking for common threads. One conclusion I came to was that there seemed to be a feedback loop created by the escalation of belief by followers and the escalation of self-loathing of the leader that in Jones's case led to mass deaths. It seemed like Jones' own awareness that he was a fraud is what made him order the mass suicide, i.e., better to kill everyone than be exposed and disappoint. But at the same time, it seemed Jones also had deep resentments toward his followers, that they were dupes for believing in him, so it was fine for him to punish them. 
My question is, is there a name for this kind of syndrome, and do you think Hubbard resented his followers in a way for not seeing through him? Hey, thanks for the question, Robert. This is a great question. Um, very insightful one. And um, because I think there is something to this, and in fact, I, in fact, I know there's something to this. The name for this, by the way, isn't really any more complicated than narcissism, uh, at least as I see it right now. There might be, you know, other names for this, but um, when you have a leader knows he's a fraud, knows he's a fake, and he's pushing his stuff anyway, and people believe him, and more and more and more people grow to believe him as he improves his sales talk, he improves his methods, he uses more and more thought controlling mechanisms, you know, as this develops, I think almost anyone would start to feel a bit of contempt towards the people who are buying into the bullshit because he knows it's bullshit. Now, this tends to be a bit of a question for cult leaders as to uh, do they really believe their own nonsense or not? I think that is not really a super important question as far as the abusive nature of cults, but I do think it's an important question if you're trying to answer this one about self-loathing and about how they feel about their followers. If a cult leader truly believes they are a true believer in their subject, then they're not going to feel compelled to hate on their followers because they're a bunch of dupes because they're going to think the same they're going to they're going to all be on this same page of belief see you know it's not just cult leaders that this phenomenon occurs with i was listening to anthony jeselnik talk to joe rogan about comedy on a podcast a few months ago jeselnik is a com is a comedian i actually really like but he made a very curious and interesting comment during the podcast, which Joe did not follow up on. He just kind of laughed and agreed with him about it. And I was a little disturbed by it, actually, because they, they kind of came to this agreement on this point where, where Jeselnik said, you know, don't you find yourself kind of hating the audience after a while? And Joe was like, yeah, you know, and it wasn't really like they didn't really go into it in too much more detail. And I was very curious about that because... He kind of he gave this impression. I don't remember everything Anthony said exactly, but he definitely gave me the impression that after a while, you know, you, you talk to crowds and crowds and crowds of people all over the country. Some comedians go international. And you see all these people and you've tailored all these jokes, all these, you know, terrible, some jokes, really horrible things to say. You know, they're just kind of funny, goofy stuff, but nobody's taking it seriously. And I'm not I'm not making value judgments about comedians here. Um, I'm saying that it's an interesting thing that a comedian would come to just start hating on the audience. Like, what's up with that? And he never really did say why. And I really wanted him to pursue that question. And I haven't seen Jezenlik take it up since. But I guess after a while, you start, you know, from what I understood, from from what the impression I got from what he was saying, and I and I'm tying this directly back into the cult leaders as well, is you you realize that you are manipulating people. Comedians manipulate people. You they get you to laugh. That's manipulation. It's not bad manipulation, but it's still manipulation. And cult leaders manipulate people by getting them to believe something and by getting them to support the cult leader and go along with what the cult leader wants. It's a whole different level than comedians, of course, but there is manipulation going on there. And I wonder if there isn't, after a while, some degree of like, ah, oh, these people, they're so easily manipulated. They're sheep. I can just do this and this and, and look what happens. And I am pretty sure that comedians 
as an example of a class of people are people who would make amazing psychologists <laughs> or sociologists. I bet you that you could have some very interesting conversations between comedians and sociologists uh, about how people in groups act or with psychologists for how individuals, you know, what they find funny, what they don't, what, you know, where, where are lines drawn, where, where are values, you know, you know, this kind of thing. Um, and I think that's in perfect alignment with cult leaders. And again, I'm not, I'm not saying they're the same thing at all. I'm not even trying to draw, you know, anything other than a comparison between in terms of manipulation. But, um, but this is a thing. I wonder if motivational speakers start start hating on their audiences a little bit, you know, because you find that human beings are way, way more malleable in groups, in group settings than, than anybody wants to actually really believe. I think magicians, I think uh, mentalists actually are the ones who are the most upfront you know, Darren Brown, for example, I think these guys are the most upfront about this kind of phenomenon. And even they, even Darren Brown, I mean, anybody who thinks that he's just being completely straightforward with you guys, like, no, he's got all kinds of curves he's throwing in. So, so I think, I think that's kind of where it comes from is that realization that people are malleable in ways that people themselves don't even but believe they don't even well, they don't want to believe it but they are so i think that might be where that kind of comes from a little bit and cult leaders being an extreme example of people who are manipulating other people for very nefarious reasons i mean let's be super clear that you know intent matters again context matters so with cult leaders you know, they are taking such advantage of people. They are literally abusing people physically, psychologically, sexually, socially, so financially. So they have to hate on these people. I mean, they're, they're, you know, even as a true believer, even if you really believed in everything that you were saying, well, everything you're saying, but you know, even even if if you are a true believer, like okay, let's say Scientology. L. Ron Hubbard believes in the ARC triangle and the tone scale, and you know the the all the the crap he talks about with the reactive mind and auditing and body thetans and all that. Even if he believes in all of that, even Hubbard had to know, you know, something's really wrong with these people that I'm able to just throw them off the side of a ship. Or let me, you know, they let me lock their four-year-old kid in a chain locker for days. I mean, I think Hubbard got to the point where he just started pushing it just to see how far he could push it. And in fact, that was a trait Hubbard had right from the beginning that people who would eventually leave Scientology would accuse him of. And Hubbard jokingly joked about it, rather, in uh, lectures sometimes, that he, you know, people would accuse him of, I think you just do this or say this or push this out there just to see how far you can push. And I think he did, and I think he was telling the truth there. You know? So anyway, so I think it's, a, you know, it's probably a nuanced thing. And, um, but I, think, I hope the comedian example sort of gave a, you know, or contrast, gave a, a, a fuller understanding of what I'm trying to say here. I hope this got across. And um, anyway, and there you go. 
Okay, everybody, that is our show for this week. I hope that these answers were informative, entertaining, and educational. <laughs> um, thank you very much for coming around and watching. Please send me any questions that you have uh, to askchrisshelton at gmail.com, and I will get them and put them in my answer queue. I want to thank everybody who is uh, giving, sending me questions because I, I love them, and I love uh, you know generating more future content for more of these episodes. And again, uh, you will be hearing more about this call-in show that will be starting up in the next week or two. So keep tuned for that. And I would very, very, very much like any feedback you guys have about what I might want to put out there on the call-in show versus what I do with my podcast and my Q&A show. All right, guys. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye.